Hello, my name is Sergio Marrero, co-founder of Rebel Methods, a community by founders for founders, and your host of the Impact Innovation Podcast, where we bring you innovation news from experts in the field and events. And we aim to give you the insights to keep you on the edge of innovation and accelerate your timeline from zero to impact. And our next episode is from the Social Enterprise Conference that was hosted by the Harvard Business School and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in 2018. And this next panel is Innovating Solutions in Emerging Markets with representatives from the Infrastructure Development Front, Ubuntu Capital, and Pearson Online and Blended Learning. Hi everyone, thanks for coming. Um, my name is Jillian Cohn. I'm a first year at the Business School. Um, I am particularly interested in this panel. Uh, I have been working in impact investing for a few years with a focus on emerging markets. And one thing that I constantly see are really early stage companies that are very mission focused, but as they try to scale, they uh, have a lot of hard decisions to make between building the company and staying on their mission-oriented track. And I think we have some great panelists here who are going to be able to help us think about that problem. Um, so we have Eleanor Joseph, who is the co-founder and CEO of Ubuntu Capital, um, Elizabeth Friend, who is managing director of S3 IDF, um, and um, Amar, sorry, I'm going to forget we're over. Uh, who works at Pearson. Um, I'm going to let them give um, more detailed introductions of themselves, and then we'll take it off. Sure, so I'm Eleanor, it's a pleasure to meet all of you. Um, I co-founded a company called Ubuntu Capital, which basically is similar to a Yelp slash Thumbtack slash Angie's List type product, but exclusively for use in urban centers within emerging markets, where 90% of the folks there actually operate within the informal economy, and it's very challenging to have a good understanding from the consumer side of who you're working with. So we provide consumers information, we vet folks, we provide information about quality and long number of different metrics. Um, and then on the service provider side, we help them drive business, grow their businesses, formalize, hire folks, um, kind of build what we what we really see ourselves doing is building a marketplace within um, within urban centers again in emerging markets. Um, so we've been working on Ubuntu for about two and a half years. It was actually the, um, if anyone really wants to sort of due diligence on it, the business plan for it was the subject of my PAE, for those of you guys who are Kennedy School folks. Um, so it really came, it began as, a, as an academic exercise and uh, got a lot of encouragement to build it out. So that's, that's what I'm doing. Okay. I'm Elizabeth Friend. I'm Managing Director of Esther Idea. SRADF is a nonprofit organization with offices here in Cambridge and another office in Bangalore, India. We're a bit of a hybrid group in that we do a fair amount of uh, consulting work for groups uh, like the Asian Development Bank, World Bank, uh, USAID, as well as work directly um, in terms of our own project development. And we, through our work, focus a lot on building much more inclusive market systems so that it does uh, enable uh, entrepreneurs to have an easier go at building their own enterprises. And this means that we spend a lot of time focusing on the gaps and barriers that prevent a lot of critical inputs that are necessary for, for business um, first uh, conceptualization and then um, early stage operation and then ultimately, ultimately for growth. Um, and so in many ways we end up playing the role of an ecosystem facilitator trying to enable more of these um, partnerships, ships, and transactions to move forward. 
Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Elmer Kumar. I work at Pearson, which is a large education company. And I started off my career in education as a school teacher in Bangalore. I became a school principal. Uh, from there, I went to you know, consulting at McKinsey. And now uh, at Pearson, I've had two roles. One is as head of efficacy, where we're trying to define, measure, and improve learning outcomes across our products, especially in emerging markets where the need is greatest. As well as now, uh, my new role is head of product management for our virtual schools business, and we have a massive opportunity in emerging markets to help address the talent shortage, the outcomes gaps, using virtual instruction. Great. So the three of you just touched briefly on what drew you to social enterprise, and particularly social enterprise in emerging markets. Want to do a reverse order? So we don't just... We can. <laughs> sure. We're going to switch it up a little bit. Yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, for me, education's been a passion, like I'm sure it has for many of you for a long time, but it never felt like a career choice um, until one day at 2 a.m. working at McKinsey. I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this, <laughs> um, I don't do this anymore. Um, and I realized that on the 2 a.m. nights when I was working on education projects at McKinsey, I loved it. And so we have nights when I was working on healthcare projects. I didn't like it so much. Um, so that kind of got my gears turning, and I realized that this is where I really want to focus my career. Um, I started off in a nonprofit at a, the school that I mentioned. It was a nonprofit organization. Um, from there, when I went to Pearson, um, I started to get more excited about the idea of shared value, where you do well by doing good. Uh, and the more good you do, the better you do financially. And so that's kind of what I tried to build with our efficacy program. And also, we're trying to do with our virtual instructions. Oh, yeah. So I was originally going to be a lawyer, following my dad's footsteps, uh, and I really love that analytical thinking, that problem-solving aspects. But uh, for an independent study in, in college, I ended up going to Nepal and, and Tibet, and spent a lot of time there looking at different types of issues and looking at the structure of different uh, organizations that were working on. Uh, on this a large range of, of issues. And I really came to appreciate that a lot of the problems that, that were there, if, if one could um, address some of the systemic barriers that were really preventing more effective solutions uh, from, from just naturally occurring, they were there, they wanted to grow, they wanted to move, there could be a lot of, of positive change that, that could happen. Of course, you know, being college, very, very naive about like, what that would really take to do. Um, but in particular, I, I saw a lot of very interesting um, models and groups that were integrating different business principles into their operations and saw that there was a lot, that there could be a lot of potential there. Um, in particular, there were so many challenges around uh, areas of infrastructure service access, being basically things like access to electricity and drinking water, that if those could be solved for, it does provide a platform through which other developments and other opportunities can, can really grow and flourish. And so I, through that experience, got very interested in this, in this combination of, of kind of enterprise or business solutions as well as looking specifically at um, the small scale infrastructure space um, to, to look at the service, the access issues. Um, and that kind of put me on this track that then you know, took me to grad schools, living and working in some other different developing and, and emerging market economies, and then ultimately landed me where I um, am today at Esther IDF, and I have been for the last uh, six plus years looking at a lot of the, the huge barriers and gaps that, um, and really actively working to, to address them for entrepreneurs. I think my answer to this question, um, it wasn't super purposeful. Like I didn't wake up one morning and say I want to 
start a social enterprise per se. But like Elizabeth said, I'm a very strong believer in sort of market tools in terms of um, developing sustainable business models. And that doesn't have to be for profit. My company is for profit, but it doesn't have to be. It can be um, nonprofit and revenue generating. It can be nonprofit and a super strategic or uh, creative fundraising strategy. Um, so I wouldn't say that the decision was, was social enterprise per se. The decision for me was sustainable business model and then doing something that I think is um, going to leave the world a better place. So I have at every job I've taken, and you know, I'm reviewing my my background is somewhat boring, so I'll spare you all. But <laughs> I've sort of weighed: am I gonna am I gonna wake up every morning feeling as though if I'm successful, the world will be at least a little bit better? And like, no one can do it alone. So there's no opportunity out there where you're like, wow, I have found the the silver bullet. There's no silver bullet. All of this is super incremental. Um, but I think for me, it was just doing something that made the world better and, um, and and building a sustainable business model and that sort of threw me towards social enterprise. Great. Um, so Elizabeth, I want to ask you, I know you spoke on a panel yesterday about building social enterprises sure, yeah. um, and so I think that panel took maybe a 30,000 foot view and then on this panel we'll go a little bit deeper into implementation of these solutions in emerging markets. So if you could tell the room just a couple of the key takeaways from that panel. Absolutely. And if anybody was there yesterday, and I'm leaving at something today, just raise your hand and chime in. Um, so yesterday we we spent some time looking at, at the, the very broad broad issues that affect this space and, and what it really takes to uh, to move forward with social enterprise in, in challenging contexts. So we spent some time looking at what are what what is so challenging about operating in um, in emerging markets and we certainly did not cover them all, but um, there were there were a lot of points made about well you know your whatever it is that you are trying to, to do to solve for what what your piece is it's really never going to be in isolation you know you're you have to be considering oh the government policy you know what what does that what does that mean how does that affect everything sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad um, the financing too you know, what is what is actually available um, in countries and we spent some time looking at well what type of local financing is available how can that be leveraged um, from you know local banks or otherwise and then how much of it is really needing to come from the outside um, uh, external sources and and what are the the challenges to do that based on the business model the, the financial social trade-offs in, in some respects and even if that is a real issue there's a little kind of side discussion there um, there is also some interesting uh, discussion centering around what around the communities that social enterprises um, both market to as well as as engage and what it really takes to uh, to take to form an enabling environment, and there's this one thread that came through about the about change makers and having inspiration, and what it means to um, to really bring that type of, of energy into into the into the people who will be working and uh, and then executing uh, on different business plans and and really even within communities, the how does one really find the how does one really motivate. Uh, to, to really get people to be more involved and engage with one's, one's product or, or service. And this was particularly interesting um, in, in terms of a couple of examples where one of the panelists is from, uh, is from Congo and is working on starting some 
uh, uh, agricultural-based uh, enterprises there. And he was just saying everything that has happened with the war and, and just where the market is and then the government and corruption, and he's like one of the biggest hurdles that we have to begin with in terms of, of actually enabling much more social enterprise is the is the inspiration. He said, you know, everybody who's lived through this, people don't realize that they that they can um, take opportunities and run with them. And he said that is anyways the first and biggest barrier despite everything else that is equally huge. Um, and another panelist was was focused um, again on, on education um, on in India and it was a similar thread where you looking at how a lot of the teachers in particular were were not very um, who would just sit in their offices, were not very motivated, and therefore were not setting the right tone for, um, for, the, for the teachers and then therefore the students in terms of, of what could be possible. And this was around the, the more affordable uh, school, private schooling opportunities there and really trying to get a handle on what, what, um, what these schools really could be doing if one also kind of focus on that first internal barrier and then I spent some time you know, talking about similar issues when it comes to uh, different players within the broader ecosystem that can that if that unless you have you know the buy-in and and figure out the right you know, market incentives um, for these these groups to, to really engage um, and, and figure out what is you know in it for them in some ways it's going to be very hard uh, to move from whatever kind of internal uh, inspiration that you have to bringing in the external enabling factors that are necessary to then ultimately move forward. So. Great. The one thing I heard you talk about a lot mm -hmm. is sort of motivating users to engage mm -hmm. and the teams yes. to engage. And so one thing I'd like to ask all of you guys is how have you actually done this in your own businesses? There's a lot of behavior change, exposure to new technologies, and how do you go about making sure that that's successful? Well, I can pick up on yeah. one of your threads. Uh, so one of our investment companies in India is called Experifund, which does low-tech uh, science kits for schools. So one of the big challenges in Indian schools is it's all rote learning. You're memorizing things like photosynthesis and the periodic table. You have no idea what it means. You've got a, the definition memorized, but you're not actually able to internalize it. So they created these low-cost and low-tech kits that allow kids to really experience science. So like there's a little photosynthesis kit. It costs them like 10 cents to make. And you go out as a kid, you get a leaf, and you put it in, and it starts to beep because in the sun, because it's actually photosynthesizing. So it's a really great experiential thing. You know, we did studies on it. It you know, blew the efficacy off the charts. And they realized that teachers were never using it. Well, why? Because they were too afraid to go to the principal to ask for the key to the cupboard where the kits were being stored. These are 10 cent kits. But like the way the schools work, they were locked up, and the teachers were afraid to go ask for the key because of whatever reason, cultural, whatever, they thought the principal was too busy. So one of the innovations that they did, very simple, is they created workbooks that go with all the kits, and then the principal was requiring teachers to use the workbooks. And so you couldn't finish your work unless you had the kits, and the teachers were forced to go. Such a simple thing that you would have never thought about, but we needed to encourage the teachers to go use the kits so the kids were learning. So there's a million of these examples, and I love what you said, that it's never just the solution you're solving for. There are other barriers, like in this case, it was a cultural barrier that teachers felt afraid to go into the principal's office to get a key, uh, and then they, you need to have creative ways to solve those things. I'll just be, I mean, I think that user engagement is one of the most challenging components of emerging market innovation. Um, and I could speak for hours about this. Um, I think some of it is 
I think some of it is cultural. I think some of it, you know, in the way that Amar just talked about, I think some of it is, um, I, I said this in one of our prep calls, but in some cases, your end users aren't used to being asked what they think. Like, it's just very, if you go to low-income communities in parts of rural or urban Africa or India, you know, and especially as a well-educated foreigner, you go up to someone and say, let me show you something. What do you think? I value your opinion. In a lot of these countries, there's such a strong and unfortunate kind of hierarchical structure that people will just say, I love it. I love it. You know, like, it's great. You know, I love it. Great. And bring it. And if you say, would you pay for it? Of course. Of course I'd pay for it. Right? So that information is essentially useless. You're not looking for, like, a gold star and faux information about willingness to pay data that is not actual, like, willingness to pay data. Um, so getting this information is really, really challenging. Um, the the I think what worked, you know, best, and frankly, this is something that, that any organization struggles with still. It's not like anyone's figured this out, so if they tell you they have, they haven't. But I think one thing that was useful for us was we would just put it in someone's hands and watch how they use it. Because the way that people, you, the way that you think someone's going to use it or you build something for someone to use is not the way they ultimately use it. Um, and when you say, you know, when you say, would you pay for this? Uh, and they say yes and say, okay, great, I'll start you a subscription now. That's going to be, you know, 10,000 shillings, which is equivalent of about $3. Um, you know, here's the bill. They're like, ah, uh, no. <laughs> you know, so I think actually getting people to pay, that is really uh, important information. You can do, you know, depending on what your business model is, if it's subscription, do a month free up front, let them use it, et cetera. See what your churn is at the end of that month. Is everyone dropping off? The more actual, um, sort of tangible action-focused data you can get, rather than just like quest questionnaires are useless. Um, even interviews, to a certain extent, because of these social dynamics can often be useless. So this is um, this is a tricky one. But I could, and you know, we could have a whole other probably panel just yeah, on yeah. this one question. Yeah, yeah it's um, maybe an example from some of our work. Right now, we are. Uh, in, in Bangalore working on um, a, a large city-wide waste management initiative and one of the waste entrepreneurs that we have been working with for a couple years um, has, has been, he's very creative and, and very, very innovative um, and has found a partnership with, um, uh, with one of the, the tech companies and has a couple of volunteers who are working with him to, to build out an app that essentially allows for accountability um, of all the different households, apartment buildings that are in his particular area of, of collection. And so what's been really interesting is that um, because of all of the huge waste issues in India, the government's like, oh, you know, we have to get serious, and they've been trying, you know, a partnership with others to, to really mean it. And so there's been lots of these campaigns that are supposed to really raise awareness about people, you know, pre-sorting trash, you know, looking at wet waste and solid waste, and then what goes into both, and really making clear, okay, you should be doing this segregation at the household level first, and then it'll be further processed once collected, etc. And what's been so interesting is you know, people are creatures of habit, behavior change is so hard. That has only been um, of, <laughs> I'll say it's, it's been effective to some extent, but, but not enough. People are like, oh, of course I recycle, of course I segregate. Uh, kind of, sometimes. Um, and so what was so tricky about, about this is that um, there's a lot of uh, 
lack of accountability. And so the government came in and is like, okay, well, we're going to need to start kind of penalizing some people if they're not actually doing this. But it's like, well, how do you hold people accountable? And so what was so interesting with this app that was that was designed and has since been piloted is, oh, well, it's basically everybody gets a, a, one of the QR codes um, to then put right by where their, their trash is left out. And so then um, our, our waste entrepreneur comes you know, he will take a photo of of the of, of how things are segregated or not. You know, open the lids and then do the QR code, and then all of this goes into a database that then is shared with the government. And then everybody then sees kind of like here with our you know gas and other bills, like your neighbor. You know, <laughs> it's kind of it was this sort of thing like your neighbor is has this many you know average stars versus you know versus you like you ooh you need to you need to step it up kind of thing. And it was such an and for us. And it's slightly a different issue because it's this matter of like wanting and then kind of forcing people to into behavior change. And of course, with a lot of uh, consumer-driven products and services, you know, you're not going to strong arm people into um, adopting this. But I think the the point of, of this of this uh, example is that if you can figure out the right way to either structure incentives or to um, to almost use things like peer pressure or other elements that then affect how people are going to be forming habits or not, um, it can make a big difference in terms of, in terms of usage, um, in particular about like uptake and, and some other examples we've done previously. We, we've seen that even the positive is also equally strong. Well, the neighbor has a thing that everybody thinks is really cool now. It becomes a status symbol. Well, of course I'm gonna you know, join. Of course I'm gonna buy this product. Maybe not just for its intended purpose, but because it'll give me something of, of additional value. Great. Um. So, Mara at Pearson, I think a lot of your work has been on rescaling and, and the future of work with the education initiatives that you're looking at. How do you think about this dynamic there in terms of incentivizing behavior change versus retooling solutions to fit existing behaviors? Yeah, it's an interesting spin on that research. Uh, so, we started looking at what are the skills people will need in order to be successful in the long run. Um, one of the stats that really surprised us is um, the first person to live to 150 years old has already been born. In fact, she's probably in kindergarten right now. So that means that person's probably going to have a 100-year career. Let that sink in for a second. And once you're over the exhaustion of that, um, how does a four-year college degree prepare someone for a 100-year career? Or even your graduate degree, how is it going to prepare you? It's not. So, uh, this research is really about how do you continuously reskill, continuously retool yourselves to prepare for the economy that changes constantly. And so um, we started off this research in the US and the UK because that's where we had the most data on labor markets. And now we're migrating into emerging economies, specifically India and Brazil, to understand um, what are the unique skills in those markets. And one of, I think, the interesting but not too surprising insights is that Given globalization, given technology, given automation, the skills you're going to need are going to become very similar. You know, the old days in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, the skills you needed in India were different than the skills you needed in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Um, that's actually changing very quickly. Uh, maybe not at scale, but it's definitely changing. So we're excited about the power of education to then neutralize to help kind of bring everyone up at the same time. So those are some of the areas. If you're interested, it's future future of skills. Just Google that, um, and you'll be able to find. Um, so Elizabeth, when you're thinking about funding entrepreneurs and solutions, what what are you looking for in an innovative solution like that? Yeah, it's it's really uh, 
It's very interesting. I um, yesterday during the panel, I, I referenced a particular article that was in this uh, uh, Stanford Social Innovation Review so about the returns continuum um, that was uh, written by um, or put out by Omidyar. And one thing that I really like about this about this particular graphic um, is essentially it divides um, everything off into um, kind of what the social. It's basically saying like you know social impact is is going to be taken at. Absolutely, it has to have a high level of, of impact, social, environmental, et cetera. But then when it comes to the financial returns, they start breaking it up into three categories of like, okay, there's the commercial segment, <coughs> commercial, and then grant, and then under grant, you know, they have a couple segments of like, well, how, you know, how um, sustainable in terms of the business model itself can it, can it be? Is it like, you know, 80-20, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, and I, what I like about this, and to kind of answer your question, there's, and it's not like the only way to think about it, but I think the, the idea here is that if what you are really trying to achieve is a, a strong impact, then you need to be looking at each and every business opportunity in context and saying, well, what, what is it that this particular business is going to do? And realize that just because something can't put forward uh, a, a commercial rate return or even a sub-commercial rate return, it doesn't mean that it's not absolutely critical to, to do and invest in because of the other benefits that will um, that will follow. And that it doesn't mean that, that those in and of themselves can't actually get to a point where they are uh, you know, more profitable in, in along, this, along this continuum in future. And what I like about this is that I think where we are in the funding space right now for social enterprise is that there's there's a lot of the emphasis on well, um, you know, there there are no trade-offs. We should always be going for um, for financial return and social return and of, of certain amounts. And what I see, if you actually spread out where the funding sources are um, along a, a different type of, of, of spectrum or continuum, there's there's this gap at the beginning of really soft patient capital that I think is too bad because it then prevents the kind of pipeline from going to where other people are coming in where they want maybe a greater financial return of some kind. So when it comes to things that we are what we are looking for, we are looking at business models that will that will be um, will be viable. Um, and viable can mean you know immediately, or it can mean uh, you know in a, uh, you know a year or two or three or even five. And then from there, the question <coughs> is, what does it take to slot in the appropriately matched capital at those different uh, stages and segments, so that this 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 business, this opportunity, can really move forward and have the the projected impact that that it can. Um, but what I think is really critical with all of this is just making sure that there is a hard critical look at what critical milestones would be along that to make sure that you're not just taking something that would have uh, you know a really strong impact but is going to you know really struggle down down the line if, uh, if it doesn't have certain types of ongoing inputs and just almost making sure that there's accountability on, on both sides and recognizing that um, you know there's probably no one right way or one right mix. Um, Eleanor, in starting your company, can you talk to us about the process of figuring out the idea, figuring out where you wanted to implement it, how did you, what was sort of the uh, process, which came first, the product, the market, and how did you think about it? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I had spent two years living in East Africa working for the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which is the global health branch of the Clinton Foundation. So when I was there, I saw um, kind of the immense opportunity there. There are a lot of, you know, 
how should I put this? Um, East Africa is underdeveloped. You know, our big problems are, um, this is going to sort of minimize some of the problems that we're dealing with. We actually, in the United States, we have major problems around, you know, equity, transit, infrastructure, et cetera. But we also have apps that help us have food delivered and our poodles groomed on demand and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think when you spend parts spend time in parts of the world that are less developed, you realize how many problems they have and how, how, slash how much opportunity there is there. So I think I really realized that um, when I was living in, in the region for the Clinton Foundation, then I came back um, to go to graduate school, and it ended up being, you know, I, I actually, it sort of, the original idea came from a personal experience, but I ended up writing about um, the business, you know, like I mentioned, the business plan for started as an academic exercise for my PAE. And then um, I took a, a, essentially a fellowship position right out of HBS that I knew was going to be a one-year position. And I sort of used that year to start building out the team um, on nights and weekends and nights and weekends. So I did that um, for a year. I found a CTO and I found a country manager in Uganda during that year. Um, and then at the end of that fellowship year, I went full-time on the business. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I found, I mean, very sort of technically, I found the CTO, I got incredibly lucky. I um, crowdsourced a superb technical job description, which I could not have written by myself, from uh, a bunch of highly technical friends, put it on Venture Fizz, which if any of you have not heard of it, it is a um, basically like a job board type, um, type uh, function for specifically focused on New York and Boston. Found an excellent uh, CTO and I found my country director uh, from, um, we attended, in, let's see, in March of 2015, we attended a banking, finance, and insurance expo in Kampala. And um, our country director was at the time working for KCB, which is a big, um, essentially like Kenyan national bank and got really excited about what we were doing and kept following up and kept following up and so eventually uh, we hired him and he was great. That said, I think you know the work that Amar again is doing in, in terms of edu education for emerging markets, that has been a huge barrier for us, um, getting super qualified talent in Uganda. Um, and it's not, it's not that folks aren't smart or educated in a particular way, it's that folks aren't educated with critical thinking in mind or like analytical reasoning in mind. So, um, you know, the country director was great in some ways, but was challenging in others because was not able, as much as sort of we had hoped, to be a real thought partner. If I said, I think we should do this, he would go and execute it, but he would rarely, rarely say, Eleanor, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It won't work for these following reasons. Like, I don't think he ever said that to me once, and I had plenty of stupid ideas. So finding someone who's going to be, um, you know, that kind of counterpart was, was very challenging. And actually, just one other quick thing that made me think about, you know, we sort of take for, you mentioned, well, obviously, you wouldn't just, you know, push a product on someone when you were describing your work. And sales also takes a very different form in emerging markets. Yeah. Like, we interviewed salespeople who we had do, um, you know, sort of role plays. And they, they were proposing, you know, telling the consumer that it was the last chance to buy the product, that it was the last product on the shelf, that prices were going to go up tomorrow. I mean, just really, like, outright lying to potential <laughs> consumers. 
um, because they're used to a sort of commission-based structure where if they make the sale, it doesn't matter if, if the if the um, customer churns the next month, like they made the sale, they get paid, right? So figuring out um, how to train and incentivize folks so that they're actually building a customer base for the long term is another, another challenge. Um, so we talked a bit about the differences between um, building and scaling a company in emerging markets versus domestic uh, with like, funding issues and government policy and, and user experience. Is there anything else that we should be thinking about on that list? I mean, I, uh, I think from an operational standpoint, just be, being ready to, I think a lot of entrepreneurs go in thinking, okay, I'm gonna focus on my business model and then work out all these aspects about you know, how to bring in the customers, the marketing aspects, the operational, I'm gonna think about the financing, but then I think once you get there, it is actually all these other factors that you realize like, oh, actually my my role is not to do this this relatively bounded set of things I thought I was going to be doing. I now have to be worrying about the really horrible infrastructure <coughs> that means that I'm not gonna be able to get this critical component you know, out to where I need it to go or to service this thing. Um, or wow, we only have power for this amount of time. So I'm going to have to dramatically change, um, you know, these aspects of, of my operation that I was not thinking about. Or, huh, you know, the government um, has, you know, decided to, you know, take a, you know, get involved in this way or not. And so suddenly it's like, well, I have to be planning on how to, you know, bring that that new stakeholder in or or whatnot. And so I think the <laughs> the point is that just be ready to whatever your scope is that you think you're going to be focusing in on, realize that it's going to uh, move many times beyond that initial scope and that and you actually have to be kind of working with the ecosystem and making changes there to some extent to even have your core business operate. And I think I'll pick up on a couple of actually Eleanor's points mm -hmm. as well. Um, so how many of you are interested in social enterprise and emerging economies? Hopefully all of you. How many of you are living in the country where you're wanting to do that work? Yeah, that's what I expected and that's all right. But you can't underscore enough or yeah, the value of the on the ground experience for exactly those reasons. You don't know the challenges they're gonna have. When I went to India to become a teacher, I was like, oh, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna get the best teachers. And then I saw the budget that I had, I could, basically pay up to 6,000 rupees a month for a teacher, which is a little under $100. I'm like, okay, it should be okay in India. Um, if you wanted to become a call center rep, you could pay, get 20,000 rupees a month. That's more than triple what I could pay you as a teacher. Of course I didn't get any talent, right? I could find the most passionate person, but they still put food on the table, so they went to go do this other thing. thing. So now I had to retrain a force. Of, you know, I was getting relatively low quality teachers, and I could really train them to do that work, and I wouldn't have known that sitting here. So. You know, now I sit here and I invest in those things, but um, we have one rule largely for our investments is it's gotta be a local entrepreneur. It can't be someone parachuted in from Cambridge and then they're, you know, they're trying to figure things out from here. Right. They've really gotta live there or have a really good country director who's leading. Um, otherwise, we, we just don't think it works. And maybe a point to kind of go off both of these that I think is really critical is Especially at the earlier stages, when all these things I was just describing are starting to become your reality, and it's like, oh wow, there are so many things that can cause efficiencies that, in some cases, can can break one's one's business, which 
Um, obviously, uh, good to try to anticipate and see as many of these barriers as early as possible to to correct for them. I think the, your point about you know having people who are going to be asked, able to really take a step back and say, wow, is this new idea or is this component going to make sense? Like, what, how is this going to translate into into this particular context? Is really critical. I think there's a lot of interesting um, work being done right now around human-centered design. And so being able to make sure that you are working with people, if you are not from that particular uh, community, that you are working with good people who will challenge you, and then also making sure, even if you are, to undertake a series of, of exercises to, to really test out and almost think of all the things that you're not you, you know that you're going to overlook um, is basically trying to plan for the things that you don't know to the extent possible and realize them as quickly as possible so that then you can kind of course correct and, and do what you need to do. And there's interesting stuff around rapid prototyping, um, you know, the user, the user engagements around the, are what, you know, what would people really pay? Are they going to pay even though they say it? You know, you can't take people necessarily at their word and regardless of where you are in the world, um, you just really, it, it's all about actions and again, and figuring out the right, the right ways to get at the, these, like how people are really responding um, to, to these ideas. Okay. I would say, sort of two things, and one of them is going to sound super simple, but, um, and one of them is going to sound super trite, so I'm just a bastion of, you know, great information, but the first one is, B, you have to be passionate about the problem, because whatever solution you think you have will be wrong, period, it's wrong, like, it's, you just don't know enough information at the time you're thinking about a potential solution for it to be right. Um, so I think unless you are, I mean, this is grueling, exhausting, like really back-breaking work. And if you actually, there's a professor named Cash Rangan who's at the business school who is um, studying something very similar to what you were talking about as to why social ventures, um, you know, can't scale in a lot of places or don't scale. Yeah. And one of the primary things that he has found is just that, that founders hit a wall like after yeah. three to four to five years, like they just get tired. And I'm happy to, you know, I, I uh, offline, I'm happy to talk about my own personal experience with this, but that resonates very, very sort of significantly with me. And I know a number of my, um, of my sort of, co not co-founders, but fellow co-founders. Um, so I think, uh, where was I going with that? Um, Oh, right, be passionate about the problem. That's the first thing. Like, you really don't be wedded to see your solution. Be passionate about the problem because you've got to be working on it for a super long time. Um, and the next thing, and this is just really simple, is, and it sounds crazy, but just some people don't talk to customers enough early on. Like, it's just, it's, a, it's something that, that um, affects the, the for-profit, pure commercial innovation sector, and it's something that is even more, I would argue, important. And what makes it even harder in our context is that it is really hard to talk to the consumer for all the reasons that we've been mentioning. Either they're far away, they're not used to being asked their opinion, they're hard to reach, they're completely offline. I mean, whole slew of things. Um, so yeah, I think that that's another, you know, make sure that you are um, talking to the customer. And then the third thing I would say is just, you need to build for immediate value, immediate and obvious value in a way that I think is not necessarily the case in the US. So I'm gonna just use an example. Um, have you guys all heard of Mint Financial? 
So it says, okay, so it helps you sort of navigate your finances. In order to do that, you have to link Mint to your Bank of America account, your this and your that. There's actually like a fair amount of work you need to do before you get any value from Mint. And I would actually argue that other than being a dashboard, I'm not sure exactly what the value with Mint is anyway. But in order to do that, a lot of work just to sort of get that going there. If I said to someone in Uganda, okay, the first thing we're going to do is link your Bank of America, which obviously no one has, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people would just be out the door. Like, it needs to be simple, and the value needs to be obvious, um, sort of very immediately. There's a good, uh, there's a good example of uh, Airbnb, different contexts, but um, when Brian Chesky was starting it off, he wanted good feedback, and he was facing the problem where people said, oh, this is wonderful, yeah, I'll definitely use it but they weren't using it, and he didn't know what the renters, not sorry, the, the, the person who owned the house, what their experience was like, and he couldn't find a good way to get in, and then he hired a photographer, you remember the story. He hired a photographer and offered it as a service to everyone listing their house in Airbnb, that we will have a professional photographer come in, take photographs, and make your house look super professional so that you'll get more renters. Well, he would tag along with the photographer, and while the owner was just kind of like waiting for the photographer to do the job, he would engage in a very structured interview but the owner didn't know that was happening. And so he started to get all this great intel because the, the owner thought he was getting some great immediate value from the company, but he was getting good intel on how to improve the product for the owner. And so it's the same way, if you're innovating a solution, think about these innovative ways to, to deliver that immediate value while you're getting something out of it too that helps you scale that product for the long run. I'm curious how scalable or replicable you think some of these ideas are across emerging markets. So can Ubuntu work in other countries? Can a lot of the companies you're seeing in India work in other countries? I think it can. Um, I also, um, you know, and all founders are sort of perennially optimistic about like, what they're working on. Um, I, I definitely think it can. I think there's a need for it. That said, I think that the actual product is going to vary country by country because all of, you know, there are cultural differences, there are obviously language differences, um, yeah, so I think you just have to be aware that it's very uncommon that you would have a stock off-the-shelf product that will work equally well in different geographies, so I think even if, if, if there's a need, the actual um, the actual product will, will have to change a little bit, and like you see that a little bit with Airbnb, just to use the same Airbnb example, ratings of different residences in different geographies are less reliable because in some cultures you would never say anything bad about anyone so everyone has a four or five and or a five and in other cultures um like i think in england everyone's like super kind of you know super harsh in terms of ratings and so you know like a, a three stars is a great you know a great uh kind of review in england just like the british rating system if any of you have experienced it is, is very harsh. And so if you have someone from San Francisco who's trying to stay in England, they sort of think she's the host here, just atrocious. So, you know, it's kind of a silly example, but it's, you know, and that's between San Francisco and London, which for all intents and purposes are relatively identical cultures, right? Um, so, you know, just it's a silly example, but you just, that's the kind of thing where the product, the, the devils are in the details, and um, there's going to always have to be some adjusting. Um, so I think maybe we can open it up to the audience. Yeah, sorry. Sorry if I may jump to yeah. <coughs> a little tweak. I, I want to co congratulate both of you, uh, all of you, sorry. Uh, you have very in-depth understanding of, of the issues, so I compliment you for that. Uh, two questions. 
I've been working in emerging markets, and one of the big problems I've had is corruption, kickbacks. And they have been the biggest uh, stumbling block for me, uh, and from the government itself. So that's why I'd like to know your feedback. Second, you know, I work in Africa, and I don't know if you ladies have a hot product. Are you ladies interested in, in, in hearing about it? Can I pitch to you guys? <laughs> Two questions. It won the global award, by the way, from MIT climate uh, contest this year. So it is real. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll hop in with the with the corruption piece first. So, um, yeah, this is a huge problem in, in a lot of places. We we have a very hard line, just just no bribes ever. I mean, and that's just. And I think one of the things that we have found is that making it very clear early on in terms of who we are as as an operation that just that's just not what we do, and and, and essentially a conversation stopper um, is is helpful, even though it might make the immediate term work that much harder. Some ways to actually deal with it that we have found to be quite helpful is that we have brought um, certain individuals who have a lot of. Of, of clout um, into into our operations for whom no one would ever consider asking a bribe of. And this was, um, and in India in particular, this is where I'm, I'm referencing this, where we had one of, of our founders who was very um, uh, kind of critical in a lot of the operations earlier on. And so sir, some of the projects that we were undertaking, um, it would have been very easy for, um, and, and, and probably even expected, unfortunately, for, for um, uh, more municipal level government officials to be asking for a bribe for us to be able to move forward on something. And But when they saw this individual, because of the role that he had played in government, they're like, oh, no, like, we, he doesn't do any of that, and we would get in trouble if we even knew we were asking. That was a, that was a really smart strategic play on, on our hand. And, you know, it, it is like kind of who you know, but if you can achieve some sort of similar dynamic, that can that can be quite quite helpful. Um, the other thing too is um, really trying to think about, uh, and it depends on kind of the issues and topics and services you're providing. But um, something that we all often find to be helpful is saying, well, for anybody who might, the government or otherwise, who might be making it a little bit harder for us to operate or do something, like what what is it in uh, what what would they benefit from in terms of having this project go forward? And so a lot of what we, we kind of flip and say, what, let's give them their minds. What are they thinking? What is it going to take um, to, uh, to the, allow them to not put up barriers, et cetera? And, and that can be really helpful because sometimes it's a matter of, of um, either bringing them in as, like a, as a co-collaborator or, or something where they feel like they are getting credit for something that in some cases they maybe should be doing as a government prerogative or mandate. Um, but then they get credit for something that, um, that is positive moving forward. And even if it is, you know, they only had a little bit of a hand in the actual development and implementation, that's fine. You know, we, we have achieved the result that we wanted to, to have on the ground. And then everybody is kind of happy and we're moving forward. And then that means that next time we're going to have another project, the government is going to be more likely to, you know, to work with us and we won't have to face the, the corruption issues in that way. Um, so, let's see, when I was at the Clinton Foundation, which was moving a lot of money around, to my knowledge, we had a zero bribe policy as well, but frankly speaking, I think because I was younger and more junior, I was probably, I may have been shielded from, from that, but to my knowledge, we had a zero bribe policy. 
and I think that that probably was the case. I just never really had to interface with it. With Ubuntu, I don't think, and it's crazy that I'm saying this, I don't think that Bribe is black and white. I think if someone comes to you and says, that will cost you whatever to get me to push it forward, it's a bribe. But I think realistically, and we actually have this in our culture too, you can pay a little extra to get something expedited. <laughs> and that, it, it becomes a little bit tricky. Um, in a lot of cases, it's tough, especially if it's like a lower level person. So for example, things like getting employee visas or whatever, employee work permits. Like it can either go on a stack of 7,000 employee work permits that one or two underpaid people are processing, and they are underpaid, or they can say, we have a facilitation option of an extra $10, and then it will get processed tomorrow. And it's a really tough question because you are, and, and my work was around creating a fair, meritocratic marketplace, right? So, and then here you are sort of paying a, a facilitation or an expedite fee or something just so your visa gets processed. But if my visa didn't get processed, I couldn't do the work that I thought was really beneficial to building a fair marketplace, right? So I think, I think that my own thinking on this has shifted a little bit and I certainly am against paying like what are clear, clearly like just corrupt government bribes at a super high level um, because the, I do think that corruption is a, um, actually they have a saying in Uganda that a fish starts rotting at its head, meaning that corruption, if it's at the highest levels, like you're done essentially. So, you know, but, but frankly, sometimes paying an expediting fee to get my employee to be able to do her job was worth it. So it, it, it kind of depends what they're called and how big it is and if I really think it's like a pure broad. Sometimes I'll ask to see it on paper. Oh, you have an expediting fee? Can you just show me that in your fee schedule? And sometimes the expediting fee goes away and the, um, and the thing gets processed the next day. So I'd say that they were all kind of handled a little bit differently, but I do think, I do think it's less black and white. Uh, hi, my name is Antoine. I started a company in oh, the Middle sorry, East. Oh, sorry, just really yeah. quickly. Sure, sure. And we'd love to hear about your idea. Thank you. Maybe <laughs> offline. Yeah. Maybe offline. Sorry. I started a company that works in waste management in Lebanon, and it's specialized in composting, it's a social enterprise. It's the first one in the country. Uh, just because a lot of hurdles are there, one of them definitely is corruption. And as you, was, you were trying to say that corruption is not black and white. And by definition, corruption is when someone in a public place is using this power for his own benefit. But unfortunately, in most of the emerging countries, the, the culture um, is not individ individualistic. Like in the West, where people are, you know, there's limit for every person. There's a collective group that always think that everything belongs to them. So it's not as easy, and it's a big, big, big problem. And um, I would like just to add a few maybe comments. I would like also to have your, your view on them regarding uh, the problems that you're facing. Uh, we, I also see that there is not, in this context, uh, the Middle East probably, a, uh, a need to scale up. Like people are always happy to just start a business and bring bread to the house. 
like this is another problem with scaling up. Um, traditional thinking, one of the m main problems why people do not innovate. And critical thinking is also something that you mentioned, is also something very problematic, especially if the country is in internal uh, problems between sects or groups. People tend to forget about critical thinking and focus on just surviving. So these are few of my insights I would like to have your comments on. I can hop in because what, one thing I didn't say at the start of this, the entrepreneurs that we tend to focus on are what one could maybe broadly define are necessity entrepreneurs. You know, we're, we're actually not going and, and actively uh, supporting what one could call the small and growing businesses. I mean, those are very important and they have a really critical role to play. But we, we think that one of the underserved areas in the broad social enterprise space are the necessity entrepreneurs who need to put bread on the table every day and oftentimes are the, um, are the ones that have just fewer opportunities because of cultural reasons, um, structural reasons, and one of the things that we really try to do is, is really get the, those entrepreneurs the, the skills, the opportunities, the, the assets, the financing, et cetera, that they need to be putting uh, a business that has a real social purpose, often right in their community, that are providing real goods and services um, up uh, as quickly as possible and operating. And I, and you know, it's it's not always easy. I mean, it just takes a lot of a war, of work and time. And the amount of, of effort that we put into, for example, working with local financial institutions to provide um, to um, basically get them to provide loans in the range of what would be like five thousand to like you know maybe fifteen thousand U.S. equivalent um, is is unbelievable. But what for the, for the reason why we go through this whole trouble, deal with information asymmetries, you know, sit down there, look at the business model, try to get them to appreciate how these unbanked um, uh, and and oftentimes um, you know, entrepreneurs have like no business, at least documented business record that they are a good a good um, uh, credit risk. And you know then that means we end up with our revolving fund guaranteeing part of that loan that the bank will then make. Um, you know we sit there, we look at what other incentives. Oh well, it's this one entrepreneur or this set that we'll do in a pilot. But oh. Actually, hey bank, look, there's this, all these other entrepreneurs that could be in the pipeline that would be good for your bottom line, um, and we'll just help you understand that that is in fact true, and we'll hold your hand so that you have the right, the right, um, the risk mitigation things in place so you can feel comfortable trying it out. And then we'll, and then over time, one of the things we try to do through that process is to get that bank to be a lot more inclusive in its in its lending practices because now that that um, that bank sees that it's in its best interest to do so and could actually give it a competitive advantage in, in that particular market. And so what you're saying is absolutely absolutely critical and it's something that SRADF is like most focused on um, beyond you know what I think people tend to think of as, as the social enterprise. And so I think we can always talk after, but I think the point is really figuring out what are the gaps and barriers. Is it is it around the the business inputs um, in terms of like a technology or something? Is it the financing? Is it the business skills? And then figuring out who's positioned there to really um, help those entrepreneurs um, address those particular gaps and barriers. Because um, oftentimes it's coalitions. Uh, it's not just like one entity like us. It's usually like oh, a nonprofit here and this other group here that are coming together to to really address those, but there has to be a really concerted conversation around around those particular needs. 
I'll pick up on that a little bit. There's, I'm glad you mentioned the point yeah. about scale, and sometimes yeah. scale isn't the goal. Right. You know, the traditional model of entrepreneurship we think about is mm -hmm. I get my point solution, I've perfected it, and then I'm going to scale. Right. Um, and there's a second potential model, I don't know what it's called, but uh, something where you know we want to create point solutions in a community, like a sandbox. Yeah. Right. So funders would come in, yeah. they would invest in a set of small scale solutions that kind of build off of each other. So a really good school, a really good health center, a good banking system, and their scope is never gonna go beyond that right. little sandbox. Right. And so you build that, you understand some of the lessons, you take those lessons to another yes. sandbox. And you scale by building a lot of sandboxes. And so that might be more interesting to think about in emerging markets as well, because the context, like in India, the context between Kerala and Bihar are so different. You just can't imagine the same solutions that work in two different places. So maybe you approach it in these more point, you know, smaller areas. Don't know, just thinking about it. Yeah, you yeah. ask the question. Absolutely. Replication versus scale is something that we talk about and think about all the time. And we are firm believers that it's the replication and not the scale that can bring a lot of the more immediate change and then also maybe ultimately over time more collective change. So basically, it's not the entrepreneur who's, who's uh, scaling up. It's there's someone who's like a guardian or whatever. It could be, yeah. That could be a potential model. model. Yeah. The Dishande Foundation, you might yeah. know, they do that, right? Yeah. They try yeah, to exactly. invest in sandboxes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure. I haven't Hoogly, kept yeah. in touch in the last few years. Yeah, they're still doing it. I really appreciated the comment that someone made at the beginning about um, never seeing your innovation or enterprise in an isolated situation. As we talked about, um, there are lots of players, and we've talked about the negative inhibitors, um, what challenges. Have there, and this is cultural and country specific, but are there any partners or surprisingly positive relationships that have helped or can help enterprises on the ground? Um, in a landscape that generally is dubbed as challenging, but um, whether individual people or individual government <laughs> agencies or ministries or other enterprises that you've been surprised by positively. I'll speak for um, Kuzintu. So I think we had positive relationships with investors um, who can sometimes put you in touch with other resources. Um, I think we have positive sort of relationships and partnerships with vocational training institutes in Uganda. So figure out, you know, if you don't want to go into training folks, figure out who is. Um, I think we had positive relationships with some sort of like more finance focused organizations in Uganda in terms of capitalizing the businesses that we um, promoted. Um, so, you know, think of, and, and it, it all goes back to your customer think of what other challenges they have and work to help to get them the support that they need holistically. Um, we, we interacted with um, regulatory bodies around both financial and telecommunications, because we were sort of at the intersection of the two, and much like our government has no idea how to regulate you know, emergent marketplace models, their government has even lost an idea how to regulate those. So we never really had to deal with that very much, but we maintained pleasant, um, pleasant sort of proactive relationships. Uh, yeah, I think those are, those are kind of the biggest ones that I can think of for, for our specific, our specific um, ecosystem. One example from us is uh, there's a there's a 
early childhood education company in Hyderabad called Sudiksha. They want to get kids into preschools earlier, especially those in urban slums, because they start school behind. So um, they realized the challenge was, one, um, people didn't value preschool education because they didn't think it was important, uh, they couldn't afford it, um, and it was the mother that was going to be the biggest decision maker. And then the other thing they discovered is, well, they knew, is women's empowerment is a huge challenge in India. Right? Women are typically not working, they're typically not empowered to make decisions. They brought those together by, every time they opened a center, the CEO would be a woman from that community, from that center. And she was responsible for sourcing the kids to come to the center, talking to the other mothers to encourage them to send their kid. And that woman became kind of a, sort of a shiny citizen because she was making money, she was bringing this together, she was educating their kids. Again, solved two problems, or at least trying to solve two problems at once. Very creative thinking um, in that way. Actually, I am wondering um, about the information dissemination. Since institutions are very inefficient, information asymmetry is very high in the emerging markets, especially for the frontier emerging markets. I'm not talking about like Turkey, G20 country, or some others, but um, I am wondering if you are providing the information, um, you need to also get the information to become the knowledge. So there is a specific process under a specific context. I wonder how do you facilitate that process in order to reach people and make them realize actually they can do something? Let me just make sure I understand the question. So you're asking how do we um, move people from access to information to absorbing the information and acting on it? Yeah. Okay. That's the yeah. whole ball game. Tell yeah. us if you yeah. can. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, a, in a, our experience, and um, I think what it, it comes down to is, in a lot of cases, I mean, I'll just go back to the bank example, although there, there are others. I mean, look, bankers don't, they're extremely risk averse. I mean, they, unless they have a real reason to um, to be a little bit innovative or creative, they are certainly not going to. So when we, we approach and be like, hey, we've got all of these unbanked, underserved entrepreneurs interested in lending, you know, they'd be like, oh, absolutely not, right? But we say, okay, look, you know, we, we're taking a look at the, at the market, you know, there are X number of banks in operation, you know, you have this many branches, you know, we, Assuming that your your own business plan is going to require that you 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 find some additional customers or really figure out creative ways to essentially take customers um, from from your competitors, you know, kind of hard in some cases. And so we say, look, you know, it, there there is this untapped market, and it's about the incentives. We say, okay, well, you know, here it is. Like you have, so now you have this knowledge, all right? So there there there's this potential, but then getting them to act because they're so risk averse requires. This, this change of like how they perceive the risk and how they perceive the incentive. So then this is what, then our next step in this case is to say, okay, well let's sit down. We're gonna actually show you the, the, the cash flow projections. We're gonna tell you about what a solar panel and grain grinder combination really, really means, right? So you're not, it's not gonna be scary, it's not gonna be unknown. 
So then you're saying, so then you're like, oh, okay, they're like, okay, we kind of have a feel on this. This feels like real and possible and viable. And, you know, but they're still not convinced because they're still like, okay, I have the knowledge, but I'm still not ready to, to you know, make that the actual business loan. And we say, okay, you know, what we're going to guarantee, you know, that part of the loan, or we're going to arrange a buyback agreement with the solar panel provider so that we're even further de-risking the deal. Um, now would you be willing to do this for, for maybe just a couple entrepreneurs to try out? Look, you know, it's very, you know, very little risk for you. If it doesn't work out, uh, but hey, if it does, like, hey, look at the, look at the opportunity. You see all the other opportunities, or the other oppor uh, entrepreneurs that could be opportunities for you to grow your bottom line and your market share. And uh, so I think for us, and this is just one example, but and it's never that easy. I mean, you have to go there and like have millions of meetings. And you're like, ah, this should just, these conversations shouldn't be so damn hard. But you know, the point is that it's it's trying to figure out what the what the incentives are for the other party to take that new knowledge and then to move with it so it works in their best interest. And that is something that I think can be widely applicable and not just around the financing, um, but it does take a lot of patience and a lot of persistence and the ability to take a step back and ask one's question like, what would this other party need and want um, from, from, um, from this situation to make sure that it you know, goes forward? So I think we talk a, a, a lot about like social entrepreneurship, right? So that's a, if we think from a different angle about like the social in, uh, entrepreneur, mm -hmm. right? Some of us might be with a, a, a large organization, you want to start some initiatives. So what, especially like, like Omar, like I was seeing Pearson, right? You want to start some initiative, people could, depends on how you look at it. Some people consider a certain emerging market, consider unbankable. Other could say that's the rising billion. Right, so it is. So, so how do you? What's what's effective? Would you, you can share some maybe example. How do you start those those initiatives, especially in the non-traditional sector or new business? Yeah, uh, I can start. So yeah, it's incredibly difficult, and yeah. large companies aren't geared up to do that mm -hmm. um, because they have found something that works and they want to scale that. And what you're trying to say is actually that doesn't work. I'm going to do this other thing. Yeah. And so the processes are typically against you. But you know, fine companies like Pearson's becoming this way, where they want to encourage more people to fight the grain, because they've realized that they've kind of maximized or saturated where they're going to go, and in search of new markets, they need to encourage more of that. So I think the first is you just need to look for cultures that encourage that, and sometimes that doesn't exist in, in a company, right? And that's okay. Like you have to acknowledge that. But where it does exist, then you need. I think the most important thing is you need the passion to just fight, constantly fight for it, constantly advocate for your idea, and find the sponsors that will support you. That's what's worked for me within Pearson, um, is I found sponsors who were really interested in what I was doing and wanted to help me scale that up. So um, I'm not gonna pretend it's easy. None of this stuff is easy. If anything, mine's easiest compared to living in Uganda, right? I'm just fighting corporate politics. Um, but, um, but you need the same kind of drive in order to actually I would just add one thing to that, which is I think you have to make the corporate understand the business case for what you're proposing. Like they just have to see how it's going to very simply increase top line or decrease costs, period. And I think that that, you know, and there are lots of ways to frame that. You can frame it around accessing new markets before competitors do in the next billion. You can frame it around risk mitigation. You can frame it around, um, you know, Whatever, it, it obviously completely depends what, what business you're in, what you're talking about doing. Um, in some cases, 
you know, this is a little bit of a sensitive issue these days, but like <coughs> offshoring can reduce costs and provide jobs in emerging markets, um, you know, et cetera. So I think somebody's in the bathroom. I, I remember this school. <laughs> uh, so I, um, so, but I think as well as sort of having the internal drive and the political savvy to push it forward, you've got to have the, the analytics done to help folks understand why it's going to be um, intelligent for the business. Thank you. I have a question. Sure. Um, my question is like for the whatever project we are into these emerging economies and emerging markets, they normally um, they're hesitant of change. You know, when you bring a new, I, maybe not idea because the same people around you say, you know, this is what we need, and you bring the, okay, here's the solution, but they're still hesitant to change, right? So how do you break that, that, that barrier and let them explore that this is possible, this is a way to do it, and then make it, like, more exciting for them to actually try? Because that's, that's, that will be like, it doesn't matter in what market at this point, but that will be the break barrier so they can trust you that you're trying to give good things instead of, you know, giving them more problems. Because some of, sometimes it's like, oh, this is more problematic than what I thought. I'll just keep going back to what I was used to doing. So what do you think that will be the barrier to break that? Well, how do you break that barrier so they can trust you in a way? Can I respond to this one? So I think you made two separate points in that question. One is around change and one is about trust. Mm -hmm. And the two are actually, I think, quite distinct. Um, so there is a great graphic. Have any of you guys um, found the World Value Survey? There's basically this phenomenal graphic that, um, that shows the relationship between uh, interpersonal trust as defined by the percent of people who said, I think I can trust a stranger or something like that. I forget what the question was. Um, uh, so regresses trust with um, GDP per capita, levels of universal GDP per capita, and it has this like spectacularly linear line, okay, upward, upward, uh, positively correlated line. So, so essentially, and and this is part of the this is part of the underlying um, kind of. Oh, we're almost out of time. Okay, I'll talk quickly. This is one of the underlying um, sort of beliefs that my company had that. Lack of interpersonal trust actually thwarts, and obviously I'm saying something about causation here, which you can't say from the graphic, but that lack of interpersonal trust thwarts economic growth because it increase, it, 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 it inserts another barrier into people trusting and transacting. Mm -hmm. So I think trust in and of itself is a huge barrier um, to doing work in some of these markets and something that you know, we had to be very strategic and thoughtful about. I actually think, at least in, in, in East Africa, people are pumped for change. Their people are very ready to change and are very, you know, they know they're lagging behind, they want, they listen to American music, they, they hold American products, they are very ready for like, we want to, we want to, you know, get richer, we want to sort of move forward in life, whatever change means, but the trust thing was a bigger barrier for us. I mean, one thing I can throw in here, before um, I was working at SRADF, I was working with a social enterprise in, in Nepal looking at, at water filters. And um, and what's tricky about the issue of clean water is that it's not like a light switch and like suddenly you flip it on, it's like, whoo, like value add, I see that, like right now, it's immediate. Whereas like, you know, if you're doing clean drinking water, you need to, you know, have continually consume this water for X amount of 
time before you're like, oh, I feel so much better, right? And like I see that I, my kids are not getting sick all the time. And so we had this, we had this issue of like, how do you get people to, to um, not just default to what they, they were doing previously, um, even if they've now adopted this product at some point in time. And, and it was so tricky. And, I, and what we, we continually struggled with this. So I think in part, it's, it's, it's a product thing and just you know, how much immediate value people can see and whether it's a delayed value. But if it's a delayed kind of value where you need to just keep doing it to really see the full potential, I think there are a couple things that we had as takeaways. The first being um, having early adopters in, in a particular community um, be front and center to be the ones who are using this thing first but then also figuring out creative ways and culturally appropriate ways to show that that individual was still using this technology or whatever it was um, at, at, at very specific intervals and and to try to demonstrate the, the real positive impact in, in like a real way, not just like a superficial, um, you know, parading someone around or something like that to just say this is good. And, and we found that by finding more subtle ways to um, to really show that there were people who were continuing to use this and that they continue to like it, it actually helped everyone else in the community who might have just dropped off from from using these these water filters to continue on longer because there was this kind of a cultural sense of oh wow these people I know and respect are continuing to use this and they're feeling like that the continued use is, is providing them benefit. Why would I be any different? I would, you know, I should keep doing it and trying. Um, and so I, I would suggest maybe thinking about, um, you know, tactics that would make sense with a product or service in that community that could be around that concept. Yeah, I would only say a very obvious one is empathy. Once they believe that you know what their life is like, they're more likely to believe yeah. you. Go spend time with them. Go in the house to take pictures. You know, all those things um, that often breaks barriers. Thank you. So it looks like we're about out of time. I think that was a great question to end on. Um, thank you guys for coming. I hope you enjoyed it and enjoy the rest of the day. And that was Innovating Solutions in Emerging Markets from the Social Enterprise Conference at the Harvard Business School. If you found the episode insightful, please like and share. We appreciate feedback and ideas. Please leave comments or send us a message. Our contact information is in the podcast notes. Also, thank you to Newbie Music for providing the song. It's called Starlight. A link to the artist will also be in the podcast notes. Thank you for joining us for the Impact Innovation Podcast by Rebel Methods. Join us next time to hear more on Impact Innovation.